People always ask us what team they should bet on, but where you're betting is just as important. That's why we tell people to go to mybookie.ag. They have live in-game betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and a mobile site that makes wagering on the go a breeze. Plus, if you join now, MyBookie will match your deposit with up to a 100% bonus. Just visit mybookie.ag, that's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E dot A-G, and use the promo code RINGERMLB to activate the offer. You play, you win, you get paid. Captain's Log, Stardate 71168.9. You are listening to a special Space Week edition of the Ringer MLB Show, part of the da, Ringer Podcast da, da, Network. Da, da, <laughs> Thank you. Da, da, Keep that up. Da, da, I am Ben Lindbergh of TheRinger.com. Loyal companion on our trip through the stars. It's Michael Bauman, also of The Ringer. Hello, Michael. Hello! Hi. So we are fulfilling our longtime dream of turning this baseball podcast into a Star Trek podcast for one episode. It is Space Week at The Ringer. We have space-related content up at the site all week long. And so later in this episode, we have found a way to do something that is baseball-related, but also space-related. We are going to talk to the former executive producer and showrunner of Star Trek Deep Space Nine about one of our favorite intersections of baseball and pop culture, namely the episode of Deep Space Nine that aired during the 1998 World Series called Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. It is a completely baseball-related episode, so we are going to talk to Ira about how they decide to do a baseball episode of Star Trek, how it all came together, some thoughts about the future of baseball. I hope that you will all enjoy it. I hope we have some fellow Star Trek fans who listened, but I think there's enough for people who don't. So we're gonna yeah. we're gonna get to that. We're both big trekkies or trekkers, whichever term you prefer. So this is fun for us. I put a lot of effort into not sidetracking the conversation to a discussion of the friendship between Dr. Bashir and Garrick. And I feel like there's a reason that that I had to put myself in a straitjacket for to preserve the listenability of people who haven't, yes. you know, who didn't spend their entire childhood watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Um, hey, it's on Netflix. You can go stream this episode. It's right great. Now. Mm-hmm. So we'll be back to our regularly scheduled baseball podcasting on Monday. And we're going to do a, a bit of quick baseball banter here too. We'll resume our course to earth. Yes, we will. So a couple things we have to mention, obviously, 21 win salute to the Cleveland Indians who have set the American League record as yep. we speak with 21 consecutive wins. It's a weird thing to talk about because we've been able to see this coming for weeks and it's been a notable topic of conversation for weeks. And yet every time they add one more win to their total, we have to re-talk about it again. And that's okay because it's extraordinary and improbable and amazing that they've done this. And it's a credit, most of all, to their pitching staff, which is getting some buzz now as the best ever because they have just been completely unhittable, particularly their starting rotation throughout this streak. Yeah. I If they're looking to change the name to, to something, they could change their name back to the Naps because mm-hmm. They're putting the American League to bed right now. I've been working all day on that pun. All day I've been working on that pun. Yeah, I mean, we sort of covered this because like, once a a team gets to 10 or 12 wins in a row, you want to dissect the winning streak and talk about the process. And we did that, and then they've just continued to win. So (laughs) (laughs) Corey Kluber's still great. Yeah, Yeah, I think Kluber maybe has now taken the lead in the AL Cy Young voting. If he hadn't before, I was kind of team sale. But at this point, I could really go either way and potentially Kluber based on the next couple of weeks. It's it's extremely close. But yeah, I mean, the rotation has been incredible. All of their starters have been dominant during this stretch. Trevor Bauer seems to be fulfilling that potential finally. And Carrasco's incredible. Kluber's incredible. Lindor is amazing. The offense is hitting extremely well, too. I don't mean to discount what they have done. And it's not just the stars and the stalwarts of the lineup, but it's also the bench bats who have been incredibly productive. I mean, none of this is a surprise when you win 21 games in a row. Obviously, things have been going really well. So the Indians now have the best record in the American League, and they have distanced themselves from other teams in a way that would not have been a surprise to us, as we said on our last episode, 
if we had seen this record forecasted at the start of the season, it just took them a while to get in gear. Yeah, I months ago, I have a family obligation during the, the American League playoffs, and I had booked my flight out of Houston on the premise that the Astros would be hosting the American League Championship Series. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess that's still possible if Cleveland loses in the the first round, but it's amazing that they were in a position to catch the Astros who the talk about them. has been sort of pessimistic, but they've been just fine. Like they haven't fallen off. They've been the second best team in the American league pretty much since, yeah. you know, since Cleveland sort of turned it around in mid June. I want to say, you know, I don't think that this winning streak would have been possible though, without Brandon Geyer's uh, 359 <laughs> on base percentage during the streak. So, you know, we really got to keep our focus on what's important. I think. How many times has he been hit during the streak? <sighs> Once. Okay. <laughs> in 39 plate appearances, which actually is a drought for him. You'd expect yeah. three or four in that time. I know. So we also wanted to mention Shohei Otani because there is sort of Shohei Otani news. This is another story that we've seen coming, but now there have been some more recent reports out of Japan that it, it seems extremely likely that he will be posted this offseason, that he will be coming to the U.S. in time for the 2018 season. This means, of course, that he will most likely be foregoing a lot of money that he would have earned if he'd arrived a little sooner and might still have earned if he had waited a couple more years because of the new CBA's regulations when it comes to international players. Players under 25 years old, and Otani is 23, are subject to the pretty strict bonus pools that teams are allowed to spend. And so Otani is looking at, well, depends. It could be anywhere up to, say, 10 million or so is maybe the most that a team could, in theory, give him on top of the posting fee that will be going to his team. So Essentially, he really wants to come here enough to presumably leave lots of money on the table. There are all sorts of interesting questions about whether teams might try to find creative ways to get around this. MLB will be vigilant, of course, to make sure that there are no shenanigans going on. And of course, it's intriguing to think about how this free agency of sorts will be decided because it won't be the typical way, which is bidding the most money and the most years. He will be subject to the same rules that any rookie is. So he'll have the pre-arbitration years and the arbitration years, and it'll take years for him to hit the open market once he gets here. So the question is, how will he decide where to go? Will it be geography? Will it be competitive outlook? Will it be where you Darvish is? Or my personal hope, will it be which team will give him the most opportunity to be a two-way player? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is really interesting because when you factor in his age and his versatility and his athleticism and the fact that like he has an incredible, you know, high level major league baseball track record, as close as you can get without actually being in the majors at age 23, I don't know, he's probably the most I've talked about Bryce Harper entering the draft or Strasburg or, or Mark Pryor being the most valuable unattached baseball player since A-Rod's first free agent contract. And I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely true for Otani. And mm-hmm. you know, he's gonna be making a couple million dollars because of how much the MLB wage suppression measures in the last CBA suck. And that's I really wish that as much as I I'm excited to see him come over here, even if it is just as a pitcher, I would want to see him actually like part of what makes this interesting is how valuable he would be being this good, this young. And mm-hmm. you know, the all of the considerations about how you adjust for inflation from coming over from Japan. So, you know, I'm disappointed, not just because it's going to cost him hundreds of millions of dollars or at least tens of millions of dollars, but because that would be, it would have been an interesting economic process to mm-hmm. uh, talk about and cover. The other thing is, given that there's a cap on how much he can earn and his free agency won't be decided by economics like most, it's going to be so awful. The takes about where Otani's going to go, <laughs> yeah. are, they're going to make big baseball worse than football it has the it has that potential just because oh he's he's gonna go where the other japanese guys are going or he's gonna you know Mm -hmm. he wants to play in a big city or he wants i saw a take about would he want to test himself would he want to avoid you know signing with a team like the the dodgers or the red sox or the nationals because he'd want to test himself against those teams or something like that (laughs) and like there's going to be a way for yeah this might be an article idea a way for fans of all 30 teams or or local columnists to talk themselves into actually this is where shohei otani ought to go yeah i would like him to go to a place where it's easy for me to watch him so Mm -hmm. that's you know (laughs) sure yeah i guess that means i don't care that much considering you know we live 
live in the age of MLB.tv. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's this is going to be fun. I know that you love him as much as I love Missouri Valley Conference middle relievers. So this is (laughs) I. Yeah, I'm really happy for you above all. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what it takes to get him. Will there be strange extensions or opt-ins or yeah, opt-outs? Yeah, I want to see or... the, the shenanigans involving <laughs> right. the contract. Yeah, that. And and we know it's important to him to be a hitter and a pitcher. And now really he's going to get a chance to go to a place that is going to give him a shot as a hitter if that's what he prioritizes because it's not going to come down to money. So I am really looking forward to seeing him pitch and also to the process of getting him here. You wanted to say one more thing, I think, before we move on? Yeah, since it's Space Week, I thought we ought to mention Reese Hoskins' uh, lower-Earth orbit uh, exploration <laughs> program. He yes. hit home run number 17, and he is, of course, the fastest rookie to X number of home runs and Y number right. of games by a lot, and who cares? And just now, uh, Jerry Krasick of ESPN was drawing the comparison between him and Willie McCovey, who won Rookie of the Year in 1959 with, I forget how many home runs, but like not dissimilar numbers to the ones at Hoskins' is putting up now or the ones that he could produce by the end of the season. And I think we both think that Cody Bellinger is so far ahead that Mm -hmm. like even if it weren't preposterous to think that Hoskins could close like a a war gap, for instance, Cody Bellinger has just been so entrenched as the NL uh, rookie of the year for so long. Hoskins would have to hit something like 29 home runs in 50 games or something to to overtake him. There's not really it's and because they're both first basemen, I think it's a, a less interesting version of the Gary Sanchez versus Michael Fulmer debate from last year, right. and I came down as a Fulmer guy. So, mm-hmm. I, and I think I, I'd come down as a Bellinger guy too. So, I, I mean, it's it's nonetheless amazing, and it's very cool. I mean, he's good enough that the Phillies have won a couple games, so, and they're they're very close <laughs> yeah. to crawling out of the the worst record in Major League Baseball. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's awesome. It's, yeah, <laughs> there's no other way to put it. How quickly we forget the rookie phenom. It was not that long ago that we were talking about Bellinger in the odd tones with which we have been talking about Hoskins and they both have deserved it at points this season. And I think the Sanchez-Fulmer case was closer than this one. I think to so, me. too. If there is anyone making a, a Hoskins for Rookie of the Year case, I think that is highly logical, I guess would be one way to put it on this Space Week episode. And I think he just hasn't played enough. He's up yeah. to you know 143 plate appearances. He's been fantastic, but I think Bellinger still has a, a sizable lead on him in terms of the value he's produced over the course of the season. So We're starting to see, I think Bellinger's still a better player. I, I like him as an athlete better, and I think that matters a lot for guys who are as big as they are. But you know, there he's a power hitter like he, he walks a fair amount but not all that much you know he's only about a 350 obp guy so mm-hmm. i wonder how we're gonna start you know once once the shock wears off once the the new toy phenomenon wears off i'm, I'm interested to see how we start talking about bellinger as he matures into his major league career and he's you know he's still awesome i don't take anything away from him but another thing that just came up eric thames hit his 30th home run when was the last time we talked about eric thames <laughs> april <laughs> probably yeah yeah it's been a while it's been a long season. <laughs> he lost his shirt at some point this season. And yeah. I think we talked about him then because that mm-hmm. guy is built. He certainly is. Yes. All right. Let's take a quick break here from our sponsors. Set a course for the sponsor yes. break. We will be right back with Ira Stephen Bear to talk about Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. Let me tell you about this amazing hotel booking app, Hotel Tonight. Basically, Hotel Tonight teams up with great hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means there are always incredible deals available. And these aren't last resort places. They're cool, top-rated hotels you actually want to stay in. Not to mention, with a ton of awesome partner hotels in so many different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. So whether I want to spend the weekend away on a whim or book myself a staycation at a cool local place, Hotel Tonight helps me be just a little more spontaneous. If you're looking to book a place for a bachelor party, staying somewhere after seeing a sporting event, just going on a last-minute weekend excursion, Hotel Tonight can help with any of those ideas. And you can actually book in advance, so it's not just for last-minute getaways. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So see it for yourself. Download the Hotel Tonight app now. We're also brought to you by Jack Johnson. You know Jack Johnson, the acclaimed singer and songwriter. He's back with a brand new album, All the Light Above It 2. All the Light Above It 2 is available now on Brushfire Republic Records, and it includes the new classics My Mind is for Sale and Big Sur. If you like what you're hearing, go get it now. Now it's time to boldly go where no episode of the Ringer MLB show has gone before. Space, the final frontier. And I heard that Monday's just the word we say. 
As you probably know, the starship Tecumbra is docked at our station. What you may not know is that their captain considers his crew, an all-Vulcan crew, by the way, to be the finest in the fleet. I happen to think that the people sitting at this table comprise the finest crew in the quadrant. You're not going to get much of an argument from this group. I didn't think so. Which is why when their captain challenged us to a contest of courage, teamwork, and sacrifice, I accept it on your behalf. We will destroy them. I was hoping for that reaction. So when is this clash of the titans? Two weeks in Hollow Suite 5. What's the contest? Baseball. So you just heard fictional baseball fan Captain Benjamin Sisko, played by real-life baseball fan Avery Brooks, laying out the stakes of Deep Space Nine Season 7, Episode 4, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. The crew of Deep Space Nine has been challenged to a baseball game by Captain Solak and his Vulcan crew. The Deep Space Nine team, the Niners, ends up losing the game 10-1 to 1, as the Vulcans use their superior strength and skill to triumph. But it's a moral victory for the Niners, who end up scoring a run on an accidental bunt by Rom the Ferengi, their least talented player. This episode was written by Ronald D. Moore of Battlestar Galactica and Outlander fame. And we are joined now by someone else who knows this story well, Ira Stephen Bear. He is a veteran TV writer, producer, and showrunner. He's worked on Dark Angel and the 4400 and Alphas and Outlander. But most relevant to our purposes today, he is the former executive producer and showrunner of Deep Space Nine, and he oversaw the episode that we are discussing today. So Ira, thank you very much for coming on. Happy to be here, Ben. So this was the final season of Deep Space Nine, and I guess you guys knew it was most likely coming to an end and you had an opportunity to do some stuff that was somewhat out of the norm. But you had inherited a legacy of Star Trek and baseball that I guess was maybe mostly the brainchild of Michael Piller, who was the co-creator of Deep Space Nine and had worked on Next Generation. And so there was this whole backstory about baseball that was there, I guess, for you when you started. Can you give us some sense of how you decided to do a baseball episode and how baseball became a part of Star Trek's DNA? Well, that's a lot of questions rolled into one. (laughs) Michael Piller and I were both big baseball fans. His mother had written the Mets theme song, the New York Mets theme song, the original one, Meet the Mets, Greet the Mets. Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. was pretty cool. But Michael being Michael, when I came on TNG, which was a little way into the third season, Michael had started beginning of the third season, and the first thing he had done was kill baseball, uh, which I never stopped giving him a hard time about because it was such a Michael thing to do, to kill the thing he loves the most. And when I asked him why he did it, he always would get that kind of Michael half smile on his face. And uh, he never really gave me a good explanation for it. So from the very beginning, I told him I'm going to get baseball back in the 24th century. Mm -hmm. And also, once I had left TNG after one season, it's where I never go back to anything having to do with Star Trek again. My friendship with Mike continued, and the way he conned me into coming back to Deep Space Nine was he took me to baseball games. We go to baseball games, Dodger games, which is where Michael was at his most comfortable. And uh, we'd sit there and relax and have some dogs, and he'd start pitching me this new idea. And this went over months and months and months long before the script was written or anything. So anyway, baseball was a uh, big part of my friendship with Michael. And uh, it was a ticking bomb waiting to uh, be reinstated mm-hmm. in the Star Trek franchise. And was that also how Ben Sisko's love of baseball came about? Are you at all aware of how that became one of his defining traits? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that is always difficult to do in establishing human beings in the 24th century is to come up with something that seems real and truthful to that time, but is something we can understand and relate to. It's a big problem. It's like you can't say, what do they read? Because then you have to come up with what they're reading in the 24th century. Hell, novels are going to make it into the 22nd century, if possible. And music, what do they listen to? Well, uh, you know, they listen to classical music because who the hell knows what contemporary music is going to sound like in the 24th century. So it's really, really tough 
to build specific likes and obsessions. So with uh, Avery and with Cisco, it seemed like baseball was an easy, understandable icon for him. And at the same time, because the story began in the pilot with a man who had suffered a great loss in uh, losing his wife, it would seem that, yes, Benjamin Cisco would be a fan of something that no longer really seemed to exist. So it worked on a lot of different levels. And that baseball became, you know, everyone wanted a piece of that baseball, you know, having to do with the show. I thought that worked as well. Yeah. And baseball, one thing that I think Star Trek really does well is portray sports because you wouldn't think that the same sports that we play now would exist 200 years in the future, particularly as, you know, you travel across the galaxy and, you know, encounter different cultures with their own athletic traditions. But baseball has always had this sort of, I guess, literary aesthetic to it, you know, this sort of grandiose historical bit to it that felt very Star Trek. And it paid off throughout the series with, you know, even in the the pilot baseball features uh, into the first episode. And there's the great bit with with Captain Cisco leaving his baseball behind when he abandons the space station and, and so on. Yeah. So did any, yeah, you know, I, I love that, by the way, I there, there's no question there. I just wanted that's like one of my favorite things in, in TV history. It's him leaving the baseball behind. But like, did any of those other things sort of appeal to you just beyond, you know, we want to pick a 20th century sport to sort of give our, our audience a hook with Cisco? Well, without waxing too poetic about it, I mean, I have been my whole life and always will be a fan of baseball, and I think it's the greatest game ever invented. And there's a a humanness about it, I guess. You know, I don't want to go into the whole thing that everyone's talked about and everyone knows. It's, It's a team, but it's also the individual, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it's a kind of classic element of our society. It's part of the mass culture that I think really works. And yes, there are things that you could point to and have been pointed to for many decades of people who can get angry about salaries and this, that, and changes and the DH, and I don't want to go into all of that. But it's a beautiful game. Deep Space Nine, in spite of the perception that it was a dark, angry show that didn't fit in with G. Roddenberry's future. That, that's not true. It's the most family-oriented. It's the show with the best friendships. It's a show about people and community and professionals working together. And that's what baseball kind of is. So it all kind of fits. Mm-hmm. And when something fits, you know, you go with it. Yeah. So was there resistance? Was there pushback to the idea of doing a baseball episode? I know it's late in the show's life and you had a lot of loose ends to resolve and you had the Dominion War arc that had to be tied up. And then you come up with the idea for a a baseball episode. Was that difficult to get through or was everyone on board? Compared to compared to the Dominion War and the serialization to serialize or not to serialize. <laughs> that is the dumb question. <laughs> so compared to that baseball, an episode about baseball, if it was about anything, it would be about, you know, can we do it? Do we have the money for it? You know, the baseball is not easy to shoot. <laughs> and we'll go into that in a minute. Right. The origins of the of the episode, which I think will surprise you if you don't already know it. So that would have been it. You know, I'm sure by season seven, we we needed money. You know, we knew we were thinking very big. And it seemed like all the one-off episodes, like Bada Bing and the Hollis Suite episode, the, the Take Back to the Hollis Suite, they weren't small. They should have been small. But for some reason, we lost the ability by season seven to think small mm-hmm. for the most part. But no, no one uh, at this point, we were pretty much ignored uh, by the powers that be, uh-huh. you know. The last season, the lunatics have taken over the asylum, you know, <laughs> years ago. Just let them finish up what the, the hell they're doing. And then uh, Voyager will, will lead the way 
and then we'll come up with something else really good, <laughs> and and Deep Space Nine will be its little niche little thing. Hopefully, the same applies to our doing a Star Trek episode of our baseball podcast <laughs> the other way around. But but yes, yeah. So tell us about the origin story. I, I know that it was, I think, at least in part based on a show you had worked on years before. Is that right? Yeah, that's the deal. That's the deal. That's how how wacky things were getting in season seven. It was like all bets were off. I kept telling the staff, let's just do whatever the hell we want to do. No one's watching. Not not the right. fans aren't watching, but none of the suits are really paying that close attention unless we start talking about serialization. So let's go for it. And I had done about 10 years earlier, I had written uh, a baseball show that was equally strange to have done. It was on Fame, the TV show Fame, which is a show about the school of the arts and kids who want to be famous back in the day when not every single human being whether they went to school for it or not wanted to be famous. (laughs) It was like just the Fame kids wanted to be famous. Now it's everyone. So I had written this baseball show, which was challenging and, uh, for very the, some same reasons as on Deep Space Nine, you know, Fame was not a show except at the beginning of the year where we went out a lot, but most of it was shot on stage. So just shooting on location during the year was kind of tough. And this was toward the end of the season when most of the resources, monetary and otherwise, had been depleted. But I really wanted to do a baseball show because growing up in the Bronx, I knew a lot about how your identity was shaped by how you did on the ball field, whether it was stickball, softball, hardball, as we called it, punchball, whatever the hell it was. So I wanted to do an episode with a bunch of dancers, some of whom were very athletic, but not when it came to baseball. <laughs> so uh, it had its own issues, but it was a lot of fun on a certain level. And one of the things I had done you, you guys know Roger Angel, right? Yes, he, the best. Yes, <laughs> the best, the best. I loved his books, and I remember having read in one of his uh, essays a couple of funny stories that I, I just wanted to use. And I used it in Fame, which is the one about the the catcher who was brought up and to, was playing in a minor league team, but he was new to the team, new to the league, and you know, there was a close play at the plate and everyone was yelling the guy is in touch home and go tag him and he ran to their dugout and he didn't know what anyone who anyone was. He didn't know who the runner was. He didn't know who to tag and he literally went down the row <laughs> tagging a player, looking at the umpire. The umpire just stood there <laughs> and then he'd go tap the next guy and the umpire would just stand there and down the line. He went. I thought that was just such a great story about, you know, on so many levels, not just about baseball, but about life. So that was in the Fame episode and a couple of others. The, the Fame one had more of a an obvious kid kind of center to it, which is one of the Fame kids, you know, had a reputation for crying after he he struck out in an important moment. So he, that was his nickname, Cry Baby. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you know, I had done it and I liked it. It was fun. I didn't like the fact that I told the director to be careful when we went out to shoot in Culver City, not to shoot, make sure to avoid the freaking palm trees <laughs> since we're supposed to be in New York City. And uh, they're in the background to this day. There are palm trees in Queens <laughs> or wherever the hell they went. So that bugged me even now as I say it to you. So that, that was the thing. And then we were talking about baseball and I thought, Screw it. Let's do a version of uh, the old ball game on fame. And I can't write it, though I really wanted to, because there's one thing to steal from yourself, which is better than stealing from someone else. But I can't write it. I can't write it. I just I would feel too funny. And Ron Moore was just getting into becoming a baseball fan. He hadn't really been one. I don't know. He was just really starting. I, he's now a huge fan. But I don't know if he really had caught the wave yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, he wrote it, and, you know, like with all of them, we broke them together. It became a, a lot of fun. The actors loved it. The actors had a hoot doing it. And, uh, you know, like Bada Bing, which was a gambling episode in the Hollow Suite with Vic Fontaine, it was the kind of off the main storyline, the darkness of the war 
And I just thought it was a lot of fun. I just thought it really kind of worked. It was really nice to see. It was hard to shoot and there were problems, but I'm really glad we did it. I'm really glad we did it both for for Michael. You know, I didn't know Michael would be gone so soon after the show went off the air. So it's kind of like I always see that show as a tribute to Michael Mm -hmm. ahead of time. And, you know, you've talked about the challenges of of shooting a baseball episode. You know, we've done episodes of this podcast about baseball movies in the past. And one thing that strikes us about baseball movies as opposed to movies about different sports is that baseball has so many unique movements that it is very hard to to shoot and make it look real and make it look convincing, even if like that's the whole reason you've set up the show and you're dealing with actors with wildly varying skill sets. So what were some of the challenges of, yeah. of you know, trying to like, let alone making it look real, but like making sure that everybody could like throw and catch and hit just basically. Well, unlike the fame episode where we really wanted the game to matter, which really made it tough to have some of these dancers who were not, didn't move like outfielders, didn't swing a bat like they'd been doing it their whole lives. We kind of removed that problem by saying the Niners aren't going to win. You know, we don't have to worry about the Niners winning the game. Mm -hmm. So all they have to do is score a run, a symbolic victory. So that took some of the pressure off. And we knew that Avery could play. And uh, Rom, Max, was not as uh, poor a player as he is in the show. That's why we, I believe we made him lefty, right? So that, of course, he was naturally a righty. We did something like that. So he would he would look less graceful in the field. The bigger problem is, you know, we were shooting, you know, it's not like today where you can, some shows shoot nine, 10 days an episode. We were shooting seven day episodes. Maybe that was an eight day episode that would be tough to think that when we had to keep the eight day episodes for the big Dominion War shows. So it's just getting the coverage and making the plays and and getting the camera, you know, it's not like we had, we were lucky if we had two cameras on a day. So, you know, it was just getting enough footage so you could cut it to make it look interesting. And also what we did, which I thought was smart, is we made the story around the game important to Cisco so that, you know, you didn't need to do the entire episode at the game and about the game. So I thought that helped too. Yeah, you know, in the hollow suite, they could have set this game anywhere. A sold-out Dodger Stadium. It was very courteous of Solak to set this game, I believe, at the baseball field of Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Made things a little easier for you from a production perspective. I know. I know. Well, at the beginning, you know, we, as always, we thought big. You know, we wanted it to be. We examined all those possibilities, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you'd imagine we would. Shooting at Dodger Stadium and blah, blah, blah. And all these things that, you know, at the beginning you have these big dreams and you see it in your mind's eye, especially for Deep Space Nine. With all, you know, we thought, oh, God, you know, OK, we don't even need forget about the stands and how many people we'd have in the stands. If we could get to Dodger Stadium, you know, it could be empty. It doesn't matter. It's just the beauty and the, the feel and the green and this and that we talk, you know, writers talk themselves into all kind of things before the line producer comes in with the budget and sits you down and gives you that reality check. Mm -hmm. And do you remember how you decided which cast members would be on this team and maybe which positions they would play? I know that you had Joey Banks, the son of Ernie Banks, as a baseball consultant for the episode, and he plays one of the Vulcans on the Vulcan team, the Logicians. But how was it decided just who would be in this episode? And We had a joking conversation before this about wouldn't you want your genetically modified Dr. Mashir playing shortstop instead <laughs> of in the outfield, something right. like that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm not sure Sid was that familiar with the game, <laughs> actually. The truth is, like, look, I mean, the easy stuff to say, as you'd imagine, is Renee Odo was going to ump because Renee at the time, forgive me, Renee, (laughs) you know, I love you, but you know, he wasn't a kid back then. And, uh, you know, it was just easier to, to make the security chief the ump, you know? So, so it was easy to get him out. Then we really wanted the women to be represented 
on the field, you know, the 24th century. And, uh, you know, that was important to us. Again, because the team did not have to win. It took such a monkey off our back that we didn't have to worry about it being a close game or it would have been a different, I think we would have probably sweated it a lot more, number one, and probably had to have based our lineup and who was in the field in a different way if it was going to be that kind of a game. Mm -hmm. But like I said, we gave ourselves that out. One thing that you know sort of strikes me, the baseball here had sort of a 90s aesthetic and that feels like, you know, it makes the most sense to the viewers. It would be the easiest and the cheapest to to shoot. But go back to earlier mentions of baseball, you know, in the first season, the baseball scene in Emissary is sort of like 1910s, you know, turn of the 20th century. Right. And, you know, you talk about baseball in the future and when the show deals with the past, it deals with the past from the perspective of 1993 or five or, you know, whatever the, the individual episode was to sort of predicting the mid 21st century. So I was curious, you know, if, you know, maybe if you didn't seriously consider actually shooting this in, you know, set in 1955 or, or even like 2030, whether you had given any thought to imagining the ability to look at baseball from a, a perspective in time other than when you were actually writing the episode, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, as you say it, you know, well, look, we couldn't do, I, you know, I keep referencing Bada Bing only because it's also a look back. But, you know, Avery, you know, this was a Vegas episode and Avery was, it was hard to get Cisco other than the baseball show. Uh, it was hard to get Cisco to indulge himself in whimsy, even with a small W, because Avery felt that. You know, he was the captain and big things were happening out there on that space station and around it. And the captain can't be off having fun on a hollow suite when, you know, the Dominion, the Cardassians, yada, yada. And then when it came to the Vegas show, he got very uneasy because he said, you know, Vegas was segregated in the 50s mm. and even into the 60s. And he had no real, no real desire to build it up as this wonderful fantasy place when the reality was very different. So we wrote that into the episode. We actually had a discussion between him and, and Cassidy Yates, Penny Johnson, about that very topic. When you said the early baseball, your earlier baseball, you said 55, I think, you know, I said, wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> that, that would have been fun. You know, the uniforms, all that stuff. But, I, you know, again, there would I think there would have been issues with that and rightfully so. So I think it was just easier, maybe not as creative, but I think it was just easier to do it. And kind of like you said, representing the '90s, or you know, when the when the show was shot. Mm -hmm. But that's a pretty cool idea. Twenty thirty. Don't ask me. You know, if you want to talk about baseball and Star Trek guys and Deep Space Nine, you know, in past tense, there is a moment where they're talking about the greatest Yankee team of all time, <laughs> right. and we only got it wrong by yeah, a year. Ninety nine Yankees. You right. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Come on, give us some props for that. <laughs> Hell, man, we that was pretty good, I mm -hmm. thought. Yeah. And I'm curious, Jake Sisko, Captain Sisko's son, who is the pitcher in this game and gives up 10 runs, but considering the Vulcan's superhuman strength and the Niners' terrible defense, that's not so bad. He's played by Sirach Lofton, who, as you might have guessed based on his surname, was the nephew of Kenny Lofton. And he actually wears a Braves cap in a practice scene in this episode. Lofton had just played for the Braves. Was there any communication with Kenny, any consideration given to having him come in as a ringer on the Vulcan team? Or I guess it was maybe during the season that you were producing this. Yeah, no. The one that really was interesting was, you know, Avery, his favorite player was Dick Allen, mm. you know? And that was the, the first thing he said to me. After once we knew the script was through the pipeline and we were doing it and we were it was going to the department heads and the pre-production meetings, so Avery either came to me or I went down there to the set on something and Avery came up to me and said, "I want Dick Allen's number on my back," uh -huh. and it was like, "Of course you do," you know. Dick Allen is, in my opinion, one of the great stories of baseball that hasn't a biography came out like two years ago that isn't banned. And he's still with us. 
anyway, so that was Avery's thing. Avery wanted to be, wanted to represent Dick Allen. And I thought that was, uh, that was very cool. And it had meaning for him and it got him really uh, into the show even more so. And I think you, because it's a baseball episode, you have to have a national anthem or some sort of anthem played. And so we actually hear the anthem of the Federation in this episode, which I think was specifically written for this episode. Or I mean, it didn't. Yeah, I don't remember ever hearing no. that in another no, episode. No, that was, that was written for the episode. Uh-huh. Does it make your pulse <laughs> run faster? It does. A little yeah. bit. You know, it feels like, you know, means more playing for your, I guess, nation isn't the right word, but, you know, your international, you know, interstellar uh, political alliance. <laughs> yeah. I also thought the show, just one of the things that really worked was it was a way to make the Vulcans villains with a small B, obviously. Mm-hmm. But because I've always had, back in the day, I sided with McCoy, you know, (laughs) (laughs) a lot. I mean, back in the Bronx, emotions ran high all the time. (laughs) Too much so, probably. (laughs) But uh, everyone wore their emotions like, you know, they were ready to beat the living hell out of you or embrace you as their brother from another mother. It was one or the other. It was either, you know, death or glory. And so the the Vulcans, I've always been a little suspect mm. of. And so this was a chance. And not only that, it was a chance to go back to the whole, the Vulcans not really getting uh-huh. us, which was just a nice kind of tip of the hat, I thought, to the original series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things that stood out to us when we just rewatched the episode, I think, is that, For one thing, I think Ben would be extremely vehemently against the idea of robot umpires based on this episode because Odo proposes. (laughs) Well, he says so in so many words. Odo proposes that they have a a hologram ump the game, and Ben says, "No, that's that's crazy." He he says the the human element, et cetera, et cetera. Umpire. That's right. Will you do it? Well. Wouldn't a holographic umpire be more accurate? I don't want a computer program calling a baseball game. That's something Solak would do. I want a real person behind the plate, not just some collection of photons and magnetic fields. I am actually anti-robot um too, but I do tend to look at the game from more of a statistical perspective and we're into the advanced stats and kind of playing in an efficient way. And I just have to assume that the Vulcan style of baseball and the name, the logicians, I'm guessing that Ben Sisko probably would have hated me and I would have approved of the Vulcan manner of playing baseball, which made it a little uncomfortable to watch. Well, you know, just as a little added insight, my son works in baseball for a major league team working in their minor league organization. And he is very much like you. Uh He grew up on Moneyball. Yep. And, uh, stats and scouting using stats. So I wish Michael had been alive to have known that my son went into baseball because he went to baseball games with us. And uh, so baseball really, really, really has great meaning for me, both in my life, but also in terms of my years at Trek with and through Michael, you know, Mm Uh, which is one of the core relationships I had. So baseball is, uh, we had to do an episode, put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing that I sort of found interesting in terms of when this came in the series, and I don't know if this factored into your reasoning as to why you wanted to put the baseball episode here, or if this was just the last chance you were going to have, but the episode, like there are stakes and it's important to Cisco and you care about it in its own right, but it's also in the middle of a a string of very, very heavy episodes where you're coming out of Jadzia Dax dying and then a couple episodes later you get into the really, really heavy Dominion War stuff and it's this episode is kind of like a baseball game. It's a break from from some of the really heavier stuff in the the series. Well, look, I have very strong feeling about this in terms of storytelling and life, which is stories, the stories that have beginning, middle, 
and then life doesn't life just keeps going on sometimes we wish that we could view our lives as beginning middle and end to the separate stories within our lives but we can't it all just kind of bleeds together but i don't believe one of the things i've always hated about television and that type of storytelling is you're usually stuck telling the same kind of story basically every week because that's what the fans are attuned to and what they're expecting. And so every cop show, it's the case of the week. And every medical show, someone is sick. And it has to be that way because it's what is expected. But life, you know, everyone has had tragedies and hard times in their lives. But within those times, you can have a really crappy week but there was a two-hour space within that week where you actually laughed or something happened or your mind was taken off it. That's how life is. And I just thought, yeah, it's a big time in the, in the 24th century for the Federation. But even so, human beings need to let loose steam. They, they need to turn the page. They need to have a change. And that's how life is, I find. And I really wanted the show to reflect that, both within episodes where we would have, I can't tell you how many times you'd have what's known as A and B stories, and people would say, well, B story <laughs> is like, the tone is so different than the A story. You, you throw in the audience out of the tone, and it's like, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. Because the people in that B story are not connected to that A story, and their lives go in the way their lives are going. And that's just the way it is. So, yeah, I get it. It was like it would not be business as usual within that kind of overarching storyline to have an hour about baseball within the middle of all this or an hour about trying to help a holographic image who isn't even alive. So who cares if his if his make believe, you know, lounge gets taken over by a make believe mob? I mean, it's all make believe. Why do we care? Well, if the characters care, if the series leads care, then the audience will care. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the episode is justified by Worf's infield chatter alone. I think (laughs) (laughs) Death to the Opposition is one of my favorite lines in any form of baseball media, which I assume is just a a Ron Moore line that that he came up with. Yeah, I'm sure Mm -hmm. he was. All right, Nanas, let's hear some chatter. Hey, To the opposition. Hey, better swing, better. So I wanted to to end with in the Star Trek timeline, baseball ends after 2042 because society essentially moves too fast for baseball and people don't have the patience to watch a slower paced game. Granted, in the Star Trek timeline, World War Three starts in 2026, so hopefully that won't prove prophetic. But and we are right on track <laughs> for the Bell Riots in 2024. This is all I've been able to think about since the last time I rewatched Deep Space Nine. It's a little unsettling. Yeah. So how do you think we are doing as far as baseball avoiding its fate in the Star Trek mythology? Well, I would think that at this exact time, if a person has any awareness and any compassion and any empathy, there is absolutely every reason in the world to be worried. And that's just a given. But if you know history, this has happened a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like times used to be great. Now suddenly they're bad. There's always been, I mean, it's an eternal struggle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, such as life. I think it behooves us all that in spite of everything and anything to remain optimistic. I remain optimistic that baseball, no matter how many changes they're talking about, you know, in terms of speeding up the game mm-hmm. and everything else that they might do, baseball is eternal and Let's face it, if we lose baseball, then is there such a thing still as an American mass culture, an American society? It it, it will have morphed into something else unrecognizable (laughs) to me, certainly. So let's stay positive and let's try to behave 
to one another in a positive way. And if that's not a Gene Roddenberry thing, then I don't know what. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's from a guy who 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 ran Deep Space Nine, the <laughs> darkest, most you know, blah blah blah. Yes. Hopefully, the pitch clock perhaps will extend baseball's lifetime beyond 2042. So, you have been involved with a, a movie that's out. You have a documentary about Deep Space Nine in the works. Where can people find your most recent work? The doc is uh, well on its way. Hopefully it'll be out in 2018. That's the plan. It's called uh, What We Left Behind, a play on the title of the final episode of the series, What You Leave Behind. And uh, I think it'll be a surprising doc. I think it'll be as odd a documentary and as much of an outlier in Star Trek documentaries as the series was. So I think the fans who have supported it with the Indiegogo campaign will be happy, maybe a little confused at times, but <laughs> I think it will be very successful in doing what it is going to uh, do, which is look at Deep Space Nine in different ways. Uh, and then I have a, I produced a feature film that comes out in LA and New York on the 29th of September. And then a week later starts moving wider across the country and across the globe. It's called Lucky. It's an indie film starring 91 year old Harry Dean Stanton and David Lynch. The director is one of the co-stars, Tom Skerritt. It's a reunion of Alien with Harry and Tom. Jimmy Darren from Deep Space Nine has a significant role in it. Mm -hmm. Ed Bailey Jr., Ron Livingston, it's a great cast. And uh, as a very astute critic said, it's about nothing and it's about everything. <laughs> so if anyone listening to this will go and support that movie, you'll have my undying gratitude. All right. And then you can find out more about the documentary at ds9documentary.com. You can find Ira on Twitter and keep up with all of this at Ira Stephen Bear. We really appreciate your coming on and, and giving us the behind the scenes story. Yeah. This is, yeah. Hey, I, I thank you guys because I know this is not what you do all the time. This is <laughs> not what that site is uh, always doing. And the fact that this episode still resonates enough to talk about is a pleasure. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's a sweet little thing. You say that, I mean, we talk about baseball on the clock, but this is pretty much all I do uh, <laughs> when I'm not working. So <laughs> right. it's been a lot of fun. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys. I really do. So thanks. Okay, that will do it. By the way, that star date I cited at the start of the episode, that was the actual star date at this moment. I thought you'd appreciate the authenticity. They they changed that. There is no yeah, there consistency. Yeah, there are multiple star date there formats. There is no consistency for, for what <laughs> yes. the star date is. There's this like is... a movie star date and a show star date. And there's the J.J. Abrams Star Trek mm. for Idiots reboot uh, <laughs> star date convention. This is the, yes. the third different Space Week property that I've worked in un, unsolicited jabbing. J.J. Abrams into. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, we hope you all live long and prosper. We will be back, as always, on Monday. You have been listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. Things change. The weather changes. Your mood definitely changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now.